0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, uh, my name is Paul Poteet and I'm an elder here at Bethlehem. Uh, I've been an elder since about 2009, moved here in 2003 to primarily work with college students. And uh, currently I still work with camps Outreach My role is kind of like Kenny's role with church plants. So Kenny, you know, he oversees the church plants that Bethlehem has, and he goes and visits them. I kind of work with eight campus outreach ministries throughout the Midwest and get to go travel and see those. And so I get to be exposed to a lot of what college students are dealing with today, a lot of cultural engagement and thinking through the challenges that uh, at times we face as Christians and love doing that. And uh, I get to preach today. And this is kind of kicking off in some way uh, a season of the elders here at the church preaching. So I don't know if you guys remember last week, uh, Pastor John asked a pretty probing question. uh, Who's going to be preaching next Sunday? Who's going to be? You might want to listen up? Well, I get to be the person who answers that question for you. Um, And I have this little preaching fantasy that maybe one day I can say, hey, whoever's preaching next week, you better listen up. And it's Pastor John. (laughs) Um, Don't know if you have preaching fantasies. Maybe that's kind of a weird thing, but uh, maybe one day my dream will come true. Um, But uh, I think, as most of you know, we're working our way through the book of Colossians, and we have this nice graphic that sometimes, if you get here early enough, you'll see it on the on the screen. If you get here, if you stay a little bit later, you'll see it on the screen. Don't know if they were going to put up there called the sufficiency of Christ, and that's kind of the theme over this book. And I hope that as we've talked through it, that you've seen that. And, and just to, well, here's another thing. You may want to have your Bible open to this passage or just to Colossians, because I want to jump around and point out a couple of different things in Colossians 1, and Colossians 2, and Colossians 3. And so flipping through could be a helpful thing. Um, but we've been talking about the sufficiency of Christ. And if you look in Colossians 1.14, we have redemption in him. You look in 116, in him, all things were created. You look in 119, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You look at 122, we were reconciled in his body of flesh. And there are 11 more in hymns of some sort throughout the book of Colossians. And there's one today, we're going to talk about one today, to drive home the point that Jesus is sufficient, that he is all that we need. And we're going to see that in a particular way in today's passage. So before we jump into that, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. God, thank you so much that all we need is Christ. I I can't agree with, with Paul who prayed earlier anymore, God. There's something today about hearing this body sing truth about Jesus, truth about God, about all that you are, the great I am, as we behold our God, that you're our wisdom, our vision. Um, Everything that we could want or need is found in Christ. And God, that is so hard to believe and to live out. We know it's true, we read it's true, but then day to day we struggle. And so encourage us today, help us today, speak to us today today, of all that we have in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So I like outlines and structure. Call it type A, call it uh, Enneagram 1, call it ISTJ, whatever your pick of personality profile stuff is. So today my outline is actually the title. Um, So I've got three points. First, Paul's struggle, then Satan's strategies, then Christ's sufficiency. And so we'll take it in that order. So let's begin with Paul's struggle. So if you were here last week, Pastor John, he talked about these bookends in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 29, uh, 21 and ending at verse 29. And if you look at verse 22, Paul says that what he's seeking to do is to present the church as holy and blameless and above reproach. And then if you look in verse 28, it says he's seeking to present them Mature in Christ. So this is what his aim is. This is what he's laboring for. You see him talking about struggle. And his struggle is to help this church know who they are in Christ and to hold them up that way. If you think about him in Philippians, Philippians 1 is such a, an amazing passage. And he says, Paul, in Philippians 1, that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But then he says, But I'm hard pressed about what to do. Like, live. and and, and experience Christ, die and be with him. What, What do I do? And he says that he is convinced to remain for the church's joy and progress in the faith. Like that's what he wants to do. That's his life is to stay and see that the church would know Jesus and hold on to him. So he ends chapter one of Colossians saying that he struggles with all of Christ's power that works in him and he's doing it to this end. And so in chapter two, where we start today, today's passage, He picks that up again. He says right at the beginning, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. So he's underlining that reality again. He's been talking about the struggle and he's saying, I'm going to keep talking about the struggle that I have for you. And the word for struggle there uh, is where we get our word agonize. So it's anguish, worry, concern. Why is he so concerned? Why is he struggling so much? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First, if you look at at verse one, he's never met these people. Do you see the build up? He says, I struggle for you, Colossians, and for those in Laodicea, and for all of you who I've not seen face-to-face. So Paul hasn't seen these people. He's not met these people. Do you know how hard it is to struggle in the lives of people that you can see, people that you do interact with? So imagine like for us, it's hard to struggle in one another's lives in this church. But imagine if we're having to struggle for our brothers north and south, our brothers and sisters there. Like, I mean, we, we love them. We're, part, we're a church together, but it's hard to think that we're struggling for them. Think about, I mentioned Kenny earlier. Think about our church plants in San Diego. I was there two weeks ago to visit the church plant there. Um, a church plant in Boise. Uh, we, we have like a seminary branch and a church in Cameroon. How do we struggle for them? That's what Paul's dealing with. He's not seen them. He doesn't know them how do you struggle like that? And I think that's why he's concerned. He's like, I'm writing this letter. I'm not, I haven't seen you. I haven't met you. And so it's very important on my heart that you hold fast to this and I want to push you into it. I mean, that's why Paul is such a rock star, right? Because his love for people that he hasn't even met, his concern for people that he doesn't even know, but he wants them to know Jesus and to hold fast on to Jesus, Then we kind of have a bookend. If that's verse one, he hasn't seen them. If you look at verse five of the passage, he says something similar. Um, He says that he's not with them in body. Um, He's not only not met them face to face, he's not there with them and he's probably not gonna be with them. Now he does say that he's with them in spirit. And just a quick word on that. That's not like, you know, we can say that all the time. Like, hey, I'm with you in spirit. Uh, I I did this thing one time. I went skydiving. Don't know if any of you have gone skydiving. Probably wasn't, you know, it was before we had kids. Maybe it wasn't the wisest decision in my life. But I'm on the plane and, you know, you're kind of strapped in and you step over to the edge and, you know, they open the door and you see the world unfold before you. And there's some people who who get to come on the plane who aren't going to jump out of the plane. And you know what they say? They say, hey... We're with you in spirit. And it's like, oh, you know, thanks, great. Um, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not saying that like the people on the plane with me. He's talking about something more profound, that they're in Christ, that the Holy Spirit connects them, that the Holy Spirit unites them. And so there's something that's, that's powerful about what we share as Christians, united by the Holy Spirit. And so he's struggling immensely them because he hasn't seen them, he he won't see them, and and he wants their faith to persevere. And I say that because he's also struggling because he's concerned about something. There's something that's going on, something that could go on in the church, and we're going to come to that in a second. Um, But what I want to underscore for us, kind of practically on this point, is when he's writing this letter, he's not writing it to the elders in He's not writing it to the pastors there. If you look back in chapter 1, he says he's writing to the saints and faithful brothers there. And I don't want to lessen the responsibility that elders and pastors have to struggle on behalf of the body of Christ, to struggle for the church. That's what we've got to do. That's what we're called to do, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. However, you guys may have heard a few weeks ago, maybe it was a month ago now, time goes by, fast this pastor named Jonathan Lehman came and met with the elders and one of the things that he talked about is that the church works really well when the elders do their job and the congregation does its job and when both the elders and the congregation are doing what God's called them to do the church grows so what is your job and I think part of your job is to struggle for the faith of one another this isn't just what I should do as a, as a preacher this morning. It's what you should do day in, day out. If Paul's saying, I'm struggling this much for people that I haven't seen, what does that say to us for the people beside you in the pews, the people that you do see, the people that you interact with all the time? Are you struggling for one another? Are you in each other's lives? Are you fighting for each other's faith? Um... That's your job. What does that even mean? What does that look like? Now, I'm going to do this. Whoever's preaching in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, I'm going to to borrow a little bit because Paul says there, he's got this list of one another's. He says, Bear with one another, forgive one another, love one another, teach and admonish one another. All of this, he's not, this isn't what elders are doing for the church. This is what the church does. This is what it looks like to be a part of a church. To love, admonish, teach, exhort, equip, serve, all with one another. Doing that in each other's lives. So Bethlehem, will you fight in the lives of each other? Fight for your faith. Fight to meet together. I think one thought that I've had in looking at this is we've got to be together in person, face to face. So coming to church and being with one another is a powerful thing. And I wonder if that's all that you do, if you come to church on Sunday and then you don't interact with other Christians throughout the week, it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. So that's why we talk about small groups in the church and the power of small groups. And so think about that. Can you be a part of that or a Sunday school class or the worship team or some group here in the church that you can struggle in each other's lives? And then take that one step further Could you meet with another Christian one-on-one sometime this week? Can you meet face-to-face? It is so important that we're engaging with one another in person. We are embodied souls, and it's a powerful thing. And Paul is struggling for people that he hasn't seen. And I think we can struggle for those that we can see in a powerful and a profound way. And he mentions it kind of in verse 2. He says, I want you to be encouraged knitted together in love there's something that he's calling the body of christ to be connected for that there's encouragement that comes when you're connected you're knitted together in love he uses that same language in chapter 2 verse 19 he says the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from god so there's something powerful about being together, about connecting with one another and what you can do in each other's lives. When he says, you need to do this, he's not saying you just as an individual, you is plural, it's y'all. I came here from South Carolina. I don't say y'all nearly an, as much as I should anymore. What Paul's saying is y'all need to do this. Y'all need to fight for each other. You need to contend in each other's lives. Don't just leave that for what the people on the stage do. This is not the most important thing in our church, what's happening up here. This, I believe, is the most important thing in our church, what you are doing, how you're contending in one another's lives for your faith. Um, One more thing in in this part. In verse five, Paul says that he rejoices that he sees their good order and firmness in the faith. These words aren't used a lot in the Bible, but when they are, they have a, a military kind of reference why would Paul, like think about like, like troops lined up, they're in, they're in good order, and they're standing firm, like they're holding their ground. Why would Paul rejoice in, in these kind of military ways? I wonder if it's because we're at war, because we're in a battle. And so that brings us to our next point. So the first one is Paul's struggle. Um, his struggles for their faith, and I want to hold out that our struggle needs to be for one another's faith. And then secondly, Satan's strategies. Because if you're alone, if you're not being knitted together, if you're isolated, that is when Satan can really come in and attack your faith. So if you look at verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So hold on for a second. In chapter 1, didn't he just say, I say this in order that I may present you holy and blameless in Christ and above reproach? And didn't he say that I. I Do this in order that you may be mature in Christ. So here's another in order that. Why is he doing that? What I want to hold out is I think it's two sides of the same coin. Either on the positive side, you're presenting people holy and blameless in Christ. And on the other side is you're keeping them away from these plausible arguments. You're not letting them be deluded. And so his purpose is the same kind of purpose. One goal is getting them to do something good. And the other goal is preventing them from struggling with something bad. And what's that bad? What is he trying to keep them from? What he says here is that they would not be deluded by plausible arguments. Uh, That word for delude is used one other time in the New Testament, and it's translated deceive, that they wouldn't be deceived by plausible arguments. And that word plausible arguments, this is the only time in the New Testament that this word is ever used. And it's a combination of two words. One of the words is to be convinced, and the other is through words. So let's add those up. When you hear don't be deceived by convincing words, what, what does that sound like to you? We have one word for that in the English language and it's a very short word, lies. I say this to you that you will not believe lies. Paul's holding up Christ. He's challenging them to struggle in each other's lives. So that lies would not deceive them. So, when you're dealing with well crafted words, believable arguments, lies, do you know who is really, really skilled in that regard? Uh, Do you know who has home field advantage? The craftiest, most cunning, best liar around? Satan. Uh, And so, what comes to mind when you think of Satan's strategies? Like, that's my point. And, And when you hear that, what do you think of? Do you think of natural disasters? Do you think about war? Do you think about disease, when Jesus gets the chance to talk about Satan and his strategies, his activity, listen to how he talks about it. This is in John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus is talking to the Jews and religious leaders, and he says, "...you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires." He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Like that is how Satan works. His strategies, his schemes are to get us to believe lies. So when Paul's saying this, don't be deceived or don't be deluded by plausible arguments. He's saying, don't believe these lies because think of other times where you see Satan at work in the Bible. Think about Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. Turn these stones into bread, let the angels catch you. You can have all the kingdoms, all of that. Jesus is is experiencing Satan's lying, deceitful works. Think back to the Garden of Eden. What, What happened there? What did Satan say to Adam and Eve? If you eat that You won't die, but you'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. He he doesn't just tell like outright, clear, blatant, never believe that lies. His lies are designed to get you to believe them. They are plausible, believable lies. We we call them half-truth. The reason I like to say lies is because I think plausible arguments, that feels really tame. But to think about lies, that's what these are. And Paul wants him to be mindful of it and that Satan is the one doing it because Paul's aware of the spiritual war that's going on, the battle that's going on. If you look in Colossians, Colossians 1.13, Paul says that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. What is that if not spiritual war? Paul says in one sixteen, he talks about how Jesus has created heaven and earth, visible, things, visible invisible, thrones, dominions, Rulers, authorities. Yes, there's some earthly thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, but he's talking about spiritual ones too. Then you look at 2.15, it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to shame. He's talking about this again and again. He's cluing us in. Satan is at work. He is trying to deceive you. Last week, Pastor John said, we are prone to shift from Christ to the world all the time. And it's equally true that Satan hates your faith, hates God, and is working to deceive you all the time. What do you think it is that makes us shift to the world? Satan and his lies and what he's holding up that seems better than what God wants for us. So here's what I want to do for a moment. Instead of talking about what could the plausible arguments have been for the Colossians, and what is the Colossian heresy? There's, there's more verses that are going to talk about this challenge that the Colossians faced, And, and I, I imagine that other people as they preach will get into those. What I want to talk about are some of the plausible arguments and lies that we can believe. Some of the plausible arguments that are going around in our culture right now that are, are, are very tempting for people who don't know Christ and for people who do know Christ. And so as, as I list some, off some of these... If you're here and you don't know Jesus, don't hear me saying this is your problem because Christians in here can believe these same things. And and Christian, don't just think that, oh yeah, the culture, they have to deal with that, but I don't have to deal with that because they're plausible for a reason. Paul said that to the church for a reason because the church can be tempted to believe these things. Um, And uh, some of you will maybe appreciate some of the lies and the candor that I want to speak with, and some of you may not. Um, and so, if you, uh, if you have challenges, you can email Chuck Stedham at uh, chuck.stedham <laughs> at bethlehem.church. Um, <clears throat> so, first first lie is that your body isn't sacred. That lie is all over our culture right now. And it's ironic to start there because in the early church, there's this idea of Gnosticism, which is like uh, your thoughts, your wisdom, your knowledge is important, but the body is bad. And there is Satan's lies, there is no new lie under the sun. They're just recycled and repackaged in different ways. But that's the lie that's out there right now. The, The thought that your physical body doesn't matter very much. That it's not that important. Um, ideas culturally that say this. Love is love. It, it, it doesn't matter if, if you're a man and, and you love another man or a woman and you love another woman. L- love, your body doesn't matter. Love is what's important. This is said all through the LGBTQ uh, platform right now. And, and let me just say real quick. There are believers in our church who contend with this lie all the time, and struggle here all the time. And it is such a hard place, because in the church, the church can often look at people who are struggling with this, and and say, you need to get your act together. They can feel condemned by the church because they struggle here, because this lie is believable. And then they are condemned by the world because they don't all out embrace this lie and live however they want and so they're stuck and so if you're in here and that's your struggle thank you thank you for being here thank you for fighting believe truth be honest struggle and let, I want us to help you in that struggle um, because oftentimes the church doesn't uh, but the world what it says is it doesn't matter how you were created it doesn't matter about your body it matters what you feel on the inside that's what's important um, there's so much sexuality that's talked about right now. And and, and some of it is uh, taking, objectifying and taking advantage of the body online. And we see that struggle and we hear about that struggle. There's something that's powerful about our bodies. We're not just biological. Our bodies are theological. And God created us in our bodies. And there's something that's powerful about that. But it's not just about... The, the sexual movement right now, it deals with abortion because it's just a, a body, just a clump of cells. doesn't matter. There's something about euthanasia. that they, they can't contribute to society in a meaningful way. And so their life doesn't matter. Nancy Piercy wrote an incredible book called Love Thy Body. And it's all about how our culture now wants to, wants to divide us into body and, and mind. And what really matters is our minds and our bodies don't really matter. And that's all over the place. Um, so that's one way that our body isn't treated as sacred. There's another way, and it plays out online. That it's that who people are online on social media is not as, as or that's more real than who they are in person. Um, what, what I mean by that is that the you online is more honest, more true, more bold than you in person. And I see all the time on the college campus, uh, with, with our staff, with, with just go on social media, and you see people acting in ways, and you think, wait, I, I thought I knew them. Like, I've never heard them say this, or this seems so strange or odd, and I could preach a whole sermon on some of that in the internet, but one One thought on that, you know, Pastor John said last week that we show up at church once a week for God to save us, and that hopefully, along with that, we're in our Bibles. But put this up against how much the average American is online. 3.5 hours a day is the average time For And and, and that's the average. And so I don't know what the the real time would be for all of you. Here's an interesting stat. Philip Morris, you know, they make cigarettes. Their combined uh, net worth last year was $137 billion. Uh, Anheuser-Busch, they make, you know, Budweiser, all of that. Their, you know, net worth, $110 billion. Target, here in Minneapolis, right? Combined net worth, $95 billion. Facebook. $545 $545 billion. More than all of those companies combined. And you, have you bought something at Target? So you're giving money to Target, right? Um, maybe that you know, you, you buy cigarettes or buy alcohol. Like people buy those things. How much money have you ever given to Facebook? How much have you ever paid them? Well, so how are they making $545 billion? Do you know what they're selling? You. They're selling you online. And, and, and we're led to believe that that's more real than who we are in person. It can't, Facebook, the news, it can't tell you what to think, but it sure does tell you what to think about. Um, and I, I just think that there's, this is a plausible lie, that that's real interaction, that's real engagement, that my body's not that important. And we can believe that lie. That would be one. Another lie. The body's not that important, but you what you think is very important, very sacred. And this is kind of a connected idea, but when the body matters less, what you think matters more. And this is the, the air we breathe again. Uh, if you've seen, um, there's a, a Scandinavian philosopher. She says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Elsa in Frozen. Um, and and what, what she's saying is, no one can tell me what to do. That is every Disney movie, every Marvel movie, every story right now that you hear is telling you, uh, I've I've got this list, you do you. Put yourself first. Be authentic in all that you do. Live your truth. To your own self be true. There's a polling Gallup that states, this is last year, that 91% of Americans agree that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself, that that's who you can trust. Be skeptical of everyone else out there except you. And it's not just in, in cultural stories and narratives, it's in, it's in our highest courts. This is Justice Anthony Kendi uh, and, and a Supreme Court ruling in 2016. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence meaning of the universe and of the mystery of human life, Like You are God. You decide what's right, true, best. And again, is that anything new? What did Satan say to them in the garden? Eat of this and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. It is all around us that you need to do what you want to do, what makes you happy. And it's not just out there. It's in the church as well. It's the air that we breathe in here. We say things like, did you like that sermon? Or I don't like that song. Why don't we sing that song? Or what did you get out of church today? Because it's like, that's what it's supposed to be about, is, is this consumer, you know, idea. You can curate your church life with the podcasts that you want to listen to, the sermons that you want to hear, the music playlist, your preferences. It's just so easy right now to get everything you want, even in a spiritual sense. But that's why the church is so incredible. Because at church, you have to be around people that you maybe would never choose to be around in a million years. And that could sound like a bad thing. But it's a beautiful thing. This past week, I got to do a membership interview with, it's, a, it's a, a woman who was at church and she's come back. She's 90 years old. And do you know how, like, she's talking about how much she loves the church, how much she loves Bethlehem, and she's crying with me. And I'm, ta- I'm hearing her share and I'm crying. And, and we did it on the phone. And so, I mean, I hate that we had to do it on the phone. But the joy of being able to engage with her and hear about her faith? Just normally? I don't know that we would ever talk, but you know why we talked? Because we're here together. And, and, and we, we're coming from different generations, but we love Jesus. And when that kind of diversity comes together, that's why diversity is such a beautiful thing. Whether it's age or economic or ethnic, the, you're put together with a group of people who love Jesus but don't think like you, and that's beautiful. And it fights this belief that your way is the right way, that you determine what's best for you, that you are God. But it's a lie that's all the time, a plausible argument that's in front of us. Last one, what you, so first one is your body's not that important. Second one is that you, however, are very important. Third, what you do makes you more important than other people. So if at any point in my other examples you've thought, I'm so glad that so-and-so is here today and that they're listening to this. Oh, I'm glad he said that. They really need to listen up. Well, now I'm talking to you. Um, Because it's easy to think, yeah, those people, they're the problem. They're the ones that need to get their act together. And I think the church has struggled in ministering to people that really believe the previous lies because we feel like, well, we don't believe that. They need to get their act together. Um, and we're blind to our self-righteousness. Uh, self-righteousness is just a belief that you think makes you a good person, that, that is the means by which you're saved. Um, and there's incredible self-righteousness right now. Masks or no masks. Vaccines or no vaccines. Democrat or Republican. Social justice, anti-CRT. Good marriage, bad marriage. Children who obey, children who disobey. Self-righteousness about self-righteousness. Like you might think, yes, preach. Those self-righteous people, they're the ones that I have such a problem with. I'm like, well, you're kind of being self-righteous about that. It's so easy to think that we can be better than other people based on certain beliefs that we have. Um, and the existence of these poles in our culture is one thing, but it's thinking that you have the right answer and therefore you're better than other people. That, that is so... Off. And all of these things that I just mentioned, they're like religions. They have salvation, they have a gospel, they have good news, good guys, bad guys, repentance, evangelism. Uh, my wife went and got spice at Penzi's. Any of you ever shop at Penzi's, like a spice place? I've never been there. But when she was there, they handed out these cards. And in the card, I just to summarize it. It said on the card, it was talking about how January 6th was. The moment that our nation almost lost it—that's you know last year in the riot at the Capitol—and what it said in there is it said um, that the re- Republicans in our country today are the number one threat to the safety of America. But there's hope for them; they can be redeemed, and it's just—it's like a tract about the problems of being a Republican, and and I bet there's tracts in other places, maybe outside of the cities that are like the number one threat in the world right now are the Democrats. And, and like, it's unbelievable. There's a form of nationalism in the United States that's parading around as Christianity. But there's also a form of progressivism that's parading around as Christianity. And there was a, a seminar thing on Tuesday night, a guy named Justin Gibney came and spoke and what he said is that the goal is not to have all Christians share the same exact politics, but to have all Christians think Christianly about politics. And that's what we need in all of these different ways that I listed is to think Christianly about that, being under the lordship of, of Jesus. And last thing, one quote, because I think C.S. Lewis captured this. He wrote this in the 40s. He wrote it in the Screw Tape Letters. So this, that is a book about Satan's schemes, right? So when you give a point on Satan's schemes and you don't quote the Screwtape Letters, you're probably making a, a, a hermeneutical mistake. Um, listen, this is chilling. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. All extremes, except extreme devotion to God, are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and it's our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which is the present one, are unbalanced and prone to faction. Our business is to inflame them. Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of the partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely the part of the cause. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. I mean, can you believe that that was written 60 years ago? Um, So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all these lies? Um... You know, all, all of the, especially the self-righteous one, is you need to agree with me, not you need to agree with Jesus. And that's why the last point is Christ sufficiency. Paul doesn't focus on what the lies are, but he speaks powerfully to the truth of who Jesus is. Um, if you look at verse 3, he says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is sufficient. And that language is echoed in Proverbs. Chapter 2 of Proverbs, just listen. He says, this is a book about wisdom, right? It says, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. Uh, Colossians 1 Paul prayed he said so from the day we heard we've not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so he's saying again and again wisdom understanding you need that Proverbs is saying that where do you get that Paul says all of that is in Jesus and it's not I don't believe some vague like yes don't believe the plausible arguments don't be deceived by lies trust in Jesus I think it's more specific than that. So that first one, that your body's not important, what does Jesus have to say about that? He took on a body, right? Colossians 1.19, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9 says the fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ. The body is important because Jesus took on a body. He lived in a body. He died. His body was raised. He still has a body right now. So we know that bodies are important. He was hungry, he was tired, he was thirsty. Again, our bodies aren't just biological, they're theological. That's why Jesus became flesh and blood. And it's powerful that he did. So, what about, yeah, your body's not important, but you are very important. Look at who Jesus is Colossians 1 15 to 20, he's God. He, he is the one who has created all things. In him, all things hold together. He has preeminence. He has the first place. What you know, Satan's first lie is that we could be God. But what is so beautiful about Jesus is Paul says in Philippians, "'Have this mind among yourselves, "'which is yours in Christ Jesus, "'who though he was in the form of God, "'did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, "'but humbled himself, "'taking on the form of a servant, "'being found in the likeness of men.'" And he went to the cross to die for us in the midst of that. He said, I could be God, but I'm gonna give it up for you because you're important, your life matters and you need to be redeemed. And what about the last one? That that what you do makes you more important than others. Colossians 2.13, it says that you were dead in your trespasses, but those trespasses have been nailed to the cross. None of us should, I mean, the point of believing that we are totally depraved should be that we don't have any reason to boast, right? Nothing in and of ourselves, no belief, no ideology that we hold on to that gives us any kind of merit. Um, You know, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith. This This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast, That our righteousness isn't the righteousness that matters. It's his righteousness that matters. that's what we need for, for Satan's schemes is to look more at who Jesus is. So last few thoughts. Where we see and learn the most about Jesus and him being the revelation of wisdom and knowledge is in God's word. So let God's word saturate your life. Let that truth shape you. It's the sword of the spirit, right? Through which we do battle against Satan's lies. Um, Because we're shaped by revelation, not merely by reason. Um, But also, I would add, you know, I talked about struggling together. Get around people who remind you of Jesus. There's a pastor that I've gotten to know over the last few years in, in Indiana. And every time I'm with him, it's just clear. He loves Jesus. He knows Jesus. Who is someone like that in your life? And if you don't have someone like that, find someone like that. Let that face-to-face interaction shape you and change you. Last thing, Paul ends by rejoicing over their good order and firmness in the faith. So this isn't about duty. It's about joy. Joy that we get to struggle with one another, to fight Satan's lies, and glory in all that Christ has done for us. And so as we sing in just a moment, not what my hands have done, but what you have done, God, that you are my righteousness. Would we be convicted of our self-righteousness Would we be aware of the lies that we could believe? And would we know that Jesus is the source of all wisdom, of all knowledge, of all life? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you that we have a hope that is unshakable, that we have truth that is real and steadfast, even in the midst of lies, even in the midst of arguments, even in the midst of deceitful ideas that come after us. God, help us to fight those. Help us to battle those. Help us to have compassion on others who are dealing with those. Help us to not put any trust in what we do, in our own goodness, in the things that we believe or that we hold important, but to hold fast to Jesus of first importance, of greatest importance, and help us, Lord, to walk with him, um, to struggle with one another for him, um, and to fight